You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Satan, your kingdom must come down. Satan, your kingdom must come down. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Hello everybody, my name is Danny Anderson. I teach English here at Mount Aloysius College. I host this show and I want to welcome you to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. One of my favorite things about this show is the opportunity it offers me to talk to really interesting and smart people, and today is no exception. For the past couple of years, the the Me Too hashtag movement has built momentum and shed a cleansing light on sexual abuse perpetrated by powerful people on countless women and men. Entertainment, journalism, government, business, education, seemingly no institution or industry has avoided scandal as more and more victims come forward. And joining me today is Mary DeMuth, who has written a book about how this movement has also challenged the evangelical church and how the church should respond. Mary is an author, speaker, and fellow podcaster who is passionate about helping people live what she calls a restoried life. A survivor of neglect and sexual abuse, Mary was rescued by Jesus when she was 15 and has spent her life healing from trauma so she can help others not feel so alone. The book is called We Too, How the Church Can Respond Redemptively to the Sexual Abuse Crisis, and is published by Harvest House Publishers and coming out on August 13th of 2019. And I'm absolutely thrilled to speak with her today. Welcome, Mary. How are you today? I am so good. Thanks for having me on. I'm very thrilled. Um, I think you had tweeted something about offering (laughs) um, uh, people uh, the opportunity to interview about this book, and it sounded really up my alley here. And so uh, you were very nice enough to respond when I I tweeted back at you, and uh, you sent me an e-copy of the book, which I have to say I I really enjoyed. I think that my listeners are really going to appreciate it. Um, It's a, a really kind of perfect blend of individual sort of testimonial case study stories mixed with really good theology mixed with um, science, <laughs> psychology, and uh, and sociology, and I think it's something that is desperately needed right now in the church. And I'm really, really thrilled for you to be here today. Um, Thanks so much. Yeah, that's okay. Um, so, tell me about uh, your new book, Me Too. Why did you write this book, and what change did you hope it will inspire? Well. Um... I, I actually firmly believe that, uh, at least if, as I look back on my own story, that we heal better together. And so um, I wanted to, plus you couple that with the idea that the church has not always been the most redemptive, safe place for people who have been harmed this way. And it just kind of uh, lit a holy fire underneath me to um, address this issue in a way that would compel people or maybe be a catalyst for people to have some different kinds of conversations about this issue. Church folks tend to be very black and white and uh, protective of the institution. And I wanted to help um, elevate the dialogue a little bit more and also to help people to 
kind of um, be like Atticus Finch, like to walk around in someone else's shoes to give them that empathy. And so my heart in writing it was to create that kind of space where people could say, okay, now I understand a little bit more about what a trauma survivor walks through. And I'm going to tread a little bit lightly on my, you know, uh, very strong opinions, (laughs) however we want to say that. Yeah, empathy, right, is what you're talking yeah. about here, right? And honestly, that's one of the things that I found most compelling about this book is the institutional critique that you you levy at certain parts of it. I mean, you talk about how the the church as a as it develops over time becomes an institution that has become self protective, right? And then that sort of gets in the way of it being um, fulfilling the mission it's supposed to fulfill. Yeah, one of the things that really opened my eyes was um, the book's divided into three sections. So I look at the past, the present, and what uh, prophetic imagination of what the future could be like. And in the past, I looked at church history, and I was shocked (laughs) to find within the Catholic Church two different people who said this should not happen. And they were very strong about uh, the wrongness of priest uh, sexual predation. Mm -hmm. And And somehow those two very courageous men who were leaders, their voices got drowned out. And it's it's just fascinating to me that there were I I kind of had had this naive idea that maybe this has just been a terrible issue forever and no one ever spoke up forever until, you know, Tarana Burke said the Me Too thing and Alyssa Milano made it popular or whatever. But actually there have been people through the ages who have brought this issue up and it makes me kind of mad to know that um, there has been a systematic silencing of people who really genuinely are trying to do the right thing. Yeah, you. one of the sources that you, uh, I'll never be able to produce the name at this point, um, back yeah. from the fourth century, right? Um, yeah, you found yeah. The, yeah, and so this is something that um, has plagued any sort of institution where power is created within the institution. You have the, the, the possibility of this sort of abuse. Um, you have to forgive me if you can hear the bells. I am at a Catholic college here myself. <laughs> and so uh, <laughs> it's kind of unavoidable at times. Um, the uh, uh, And at one point you also mentioned the movie Spotlight in the book. And, and that also um, spoke to me. It took an outsider, that, that the way that movie tells the story, someone not from Boston has to come in and say, yeah. why are we not talking about this? It's so obvious to anybody who's not part of this environment, right? And I think often the church, um, it just drifts along in its own kind of uh, uh, institutional environment without noticing things that are glaringly obvious to other people. Yeah, and that's the beauty of Jesus in the New Testament telling the story of the Good Samaritan because he is a, a an amazing storyteller. And what he does in that is he talks about actually a Jewish person who has been Um, you know, attacked by thieves, Mm -hmm. because this person is going up to Jerusalem. So this is actually one of their countrymen. And so by telling the story that way, he's actually trying to place the listener of the story into that poor beaten man's mind, heart, soul, all of that. And it is fascinating to me that his very own people within his, not only his church construct, but his cultural construct, his race construct, they are walking by as if he does not exist. And it is only the outsider, the Samaritan, who is despised by everyone within that community who has that clarion call. And so that it's just fascinating. I look at that story, I'm like, that is exactly what's happening today. We're having victims and survivors just trying to get the attention of somebody by jumping up and down or telling their story. And the, the church is 
throwing this deaf ear their their way and it's the it's the free press and it's the legal system that is giving abuse survivors more uh, foothold than anything else. Yeah, yeah, and uh, we're going to get into much more of those details. But that's actually a great example of the kind of theological readings of of scripture that you do in this book um, that I think are, are just so sharp and, and spot on. So um, thank you for that. Um, so you are a survivor yourself of sexual abuse, um, and you share your story in this book. As a longtime member of the church, what perspective can you share about how abuse victims are feeling or being treated by the church? Right. So I, um, my abuse was at five years old, and um, it was only lately that I found out a little more information about those people that harmed me. I used to say that my abuse happened outside of the church, but actually they were, they were Mormons, and they were also Boy Scouts. And mm. so you have all this stuff coming out lately about the Boy Scouts. So I've always just not been able to look at a Boy Scout uniform without having some sort of reaction. But so I, I apparently I was kind of abused in that system, um, so to speak. But I also know that I don't have the same story as someone who was, you know, preyed on by their youth pastor or harmed by uh, their pastor. So I understand that I have a different... I. I don't have the same, um, I don't come to it with the same kind of pain. So I just want to make sure that I validate and dignify those who are having a hard time going back to an institutional church, because it absolutely makes sense to me as a trauma survivor that to go back to that place is really hard. My own story is that two years ago, I went back, it's written about in the book, but I went back to the scene of the crimes. This was something that happened to me for a whole year while I was five years old. And I had never, ever been back to that place, though I lived in that area for a long time. And I thought I was fine. I, you know, stood in front of all of these violating places, these deep, dark woods where it happened, next to the house where it happened, the babysitter's house that I went to. I smiled. I was in front of my own little house, which was full of all sorts of neglect and abuse and all sorts of things. And and I smiled. And then that night, as I was in a safe place, I started vomiting and I couldn't stop. Mm. And so I truly understand that some people are having a really hard time stepping back into a church after they've been violated there. And it's from that feeling of um, empathy uh, for others, others' experiences, I think, that you offer a lot of wisdom, um, uh, insightful criticism of the church, but also wisdom about how the church can can go forward. And so, yeah, that's thank you for sharing that story. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that I think was interesting, at one point you, you used the uh, Sermon on the Mount to um, kind of frame the way that Jesus uh, speaks to victims, right? So Mm -hmm. um, how does Jesus respond to um, abuse victims? Yeah, as I look throughout the New Testament, and just just now before we talked, I started writing about the woman with the issue of blood, and I'm so Mm. fascinated by how Jesus interacted with her. First of all, he's, he calls her daughter. You don't hear that anywhere else in any other story, which is so beautiful. Like, here's this woman who's outcasted because of a medical condition that she cannot control. And it was not, you know, she didn't make it happen. It didn't come upon herself. It happened to her. And she now is suffering the consequences of that, you know, rejection and isolation. And Jesus calls her daughter. And he forsakes a man who's the synagogue official who is amazingly, you know, 
distraught because his 12-year-old daughter is sick and he asks Jesus to heal him. And Jesus lets himself be interrupted by this other daughter who has been suffering for exactly 12 years, which Mm -hmm. is just this beautiful story. And so as I look at things like that, I see that Jesus often spoke truth to power. He often said his harshest words to those who were trying to oppress um, and and make some sort of like uh, roadblocks to people finding God. And uh, his most tenderest and compassionate words were for those who were on the outskirts of society, for those who are marginalized, for those who are broken. And so that's why I just tend to look at him when I think about how the church should respond, because he's supposed to be the head of the church. So wouldn't we respond in a similar way? Yeah. And the Beatitudes you quote um, in the in the book, that if you frame those in the from the perspective of someone who suffered sexual abuse, it's it's quite illuminating, right? Um, yeah. Yes. Um, so yet uh, the church has not always taken up Jesus's example. So um, on sadly, um, so why yes. does the church so often miss the mark in its response to sexual abuse? I think part of this is an ecclesiology. We need to look at things a little broader in the tense in the sense of what is church. And, you know, I, I tend to go back to Acts and the, the book of Acts and see this kind of these small communities of people loving each other. And it's messy. I mean, you've, the whole rest of the New Testament is letters about people being messy <laughs> and how to deal with them. So that's true. Um, and there's no perfect structure. But I think what has happened in the evangelical church in the United States is that um, we've got some inter- interesting hierarchies and power structures and big, huge systems. And it's like an inverted pyramid that rests on the shoulder of one man. And so if, if that one man has an indiscretion um, or he's a predator, um, the other people around that man who have a stake in their you know, livelihood by supporting him um, and want to keep the machine going, they're going to not listen to outsiders who say this is something bad. And so then if that one man is removed from this inverted pyramid and everything he's holding upon his shoulders, well, then the whole thing collapses. And I think that's one of the issues is we've kind of lost sight of what is a gathering of the community. And and when it becomes this corporate structure solely based on a personality, um, then people don't want to talk about abuse. And it, it, it also has to do with something I call the happy world syndrome. We tend to, um, and I don't know why we do this, but we tend to put our lives into like buckets. And so there's like my my bucket of secular, you know, my secular life. And then there's like my sacred bucket. And then there's my family bucket. And, and in our sacred bucket, we don't want any tainting there. We want to believe that in that place, everything is amazing. And so if someone comes and talks to us and says, Hey, there's something wrong going on in your bucket. (laughs) We just can't abide by it. Because if we let that be dismantled, then it ruins our whole idea of a happy world that we want to live in. So we put our fingers in our ears and la 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 la. We don't want to hear it because it dismantles everything. We don't want to live in a world where a priest can abuse a child. We don't want to live in a world where a pastor can exploit a young congregant. We don't want to believe that that world exists. And so if we push it away, then we do not have to deal with the harsh reality of that. And then what happens is the, um, the perpetrator gets shuffled or elevated or applauded, 
and the one who is the whistleblower or the survivor gets maligned. They're called spawn of Satan. People, Christians will email them and say, I wish you were dead. You're terrible. And I mean, these are just things that happen because no one wants that happy world syndrome to be burst. Yeah. Um, the, the power structures, right. That, um, the institution forms itself around to protect ultimately become destructive to the mission of the, of the church itself. And actually I'm reminded, and this is actually kind of a, um, a segue to something else I wanted to ask you about the, uh, about a year or so ago, I interviewed, um, a woman named Tamara Johnson who wrote an article about, um, how in the current political environment, the, a lot of um, African Americans no longer feel sort of welcome in mm. white churches, right? And so I interviewed her about the sort of exodus um, that she partake, partook of, mm-hmm. of leaving the white church and, and going back into a black church. Um, and that was, um, uh, I think, largely due to a similar dynamic is that the complaints of African Americans in white churches were upsetting to the continuity of the white church. Right. And so, um, and so she felt sort of ignored, right. Um, um, if anybody wants to go back to that, I can't remember the number of the episode, but if you look back at, you can find it on the catalog there. Um, and I feel like it's a similar sort of dynamic here. This is a, a crime that the institution is committing against its people, but, um, the act, the bringing that to light is actually dangerous to the continuity of the institution. Exactly. And it's unfortunate because um, we're we're called to be humble and teachable and um, and have that learner's posture throughout our lifetime. And I, I will acknowledge that it's never easy when someone comes to you and says, hey, there's something wrong with you or your thing that you built. Yeah. <laughs> no one likes to hear that. No. And usually we don't <laughs> respond well in the moment. Hopefully we come back later and say, hey, I responded poorly in the moment. Please forgive me. But of course that's hard, but I would love to see a resurgence of those kinds of humble leaders who will say, instead of reacting initially, just to go back and to look and to listen. And this this book is a calling to people so that they will listen. Yeah. And, and the reason I, I thought that connected is that at one point in the book, you talk about the Southern Baptist um, record on race, right? Uh, and, and that's mm-hmm. a current... Um, <laughs> Uh, debate. That's a, a yes. very vitriolic debate. Are you Southern Baptist yourself? Is that your tradition? Or You know, it's so funny. I do go to a huge Southern Baptist church, but um, I didn't grow up that way. And oh. so it's just kind of funny to me that I, I'm like, am I? Yes, <laughs> I, I am because I'm going to one of their churches, but I grew up kind of like non-denominational or whatever. <laughs> uh, understood, understood. Yeah. Um, but right now, um, folks like Russell Moore um, yeah. are under attack from people who are, again, upset about the light that people are trying to shed on these kinds of um, problems. Right. And, and so you actually use the Southern Baptists as a kind of um, example of this. Right. Right. And, you know, we also see, um, and what the, the tie I was trying to make in that particular argument was that rape is really tied in to these other sins. And if you've got racism, you've got rape and, you know, you see it throughout the whole world too, so sad just in like war-torn countries and rapist conquest and you know the kidnapping of young girls and it, there's there's just something in there about racial prejudice that also is part of the rape narrative and it just makes me 
deeply upset and wounded and sad about it. It's just, it's such a wrong and it makes me angry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and so the Southern Baptist example is one, right? But can you give us some examples of how the church has minimized the evils of abuse uh, in its history or in its current form? <laughs> <laughs> how, how much time do you have? <laughs> yes. um, how long is Not that we don't already know, but yes, I, uh, yeah, so I, yesterday, actually, I got a, a link to a very long article. I think it's in Michigan or Wisconsin in the in the um, up that in that area of a particular denomination. And of course, it was the same story told again of a girl that is being absolutely preyed upon by some 35 year old and she's like 14 and her parents realize what's going on. They go to the pastor of the church and say, this is going on. And he's like, well, you know, you don't want to damage the reputation of the church. And if you did that, then you'll be responsible for sending people to hell. Mm -hmm. So this is like, (laughs) I know we're both shaking our heads. This is the kind of rhetoric that is, is um, devious and it is used to shut people down and it is all about then protecting protecting pedophiles i mean what i don't have any other words to say except that's what that is and um it's it's wrong and um every christian who follows jesus should stand up and say no that's wrong we uh, we forget that in you know we hear the throne. Uh, my friend Jimmy Hinton talks about the throne of God, and it says that righteousness and justice are the foundations of God's throne. And we've like totally forgotten the justice side of things. And I know that you know within some of those circles of argument right now, there's this you know grand fear that if we ever talk about justice, we're on the slippery slope of theological annihilation. And I would say that we need both. Yeah. We need, if, if I'm going to speak to the church, we need to love God and we need to love others. To only love God means we're going to protect those um, structures. To only love others is we're going to forget about God in the first place. So we have to have both. And yeah. uh, when we look at the life of Jesus, we see both. He took, you know, went off by himself to pray. He obeyed God. He, he sweat blood as in his obedience. Absolutely, he loved God. Uh, God the Father, and then also we see him absolutely walking the dusty streets of Palestine, loving people. Yeah, yeah, um, I couldn't agree more with any of that. Right? It's faith without works being dead. Right? You can't have right. a belief system that doesn't do good into the world. What's the point of that? Right? And so this resistance to justice issues is um, uh, is maddening to a lot of people, myself mm-hmm. included. Right? Um, so uh, one thing. Um, I think this is a, a nice segue. Uh, in the book, you talk about seven crucial misunderstandings you found when people in churches um, face becoming safe havens. Can you tell us about the the last misunderstanding you mentioned, misunderstanding what the church is? Yes. So um, we're not a building, yeah. <laughs> obviously. And uh, we're supposed to be the called out. We're supposed to be those who are mercifully forgiven. And like that parable of the man who was forgiven much, and then he goes around and tries to strangle strangle a guy who owes him 20 bucks. Yeah. 
that's kind of how we need to remember that we're all on the level playing field at the foot of the cross. And so there's no hierarchy there at all that I see. Um, in fact, some of the best leaders I know out there are the most humble, sweet-tempered people who don't want limelight, who shun the fame, and who know that fame impo- impoverishes their souls. And so um, we have to remember what Jesus said. He said, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He's the one that took off his outer garments and washed the feet of the one who would betray him. Like, this is pretty amazing stuff. Mm -hmm. And we have kind of lost sight of that. Yeah. And and it actually reminds me, as the book goes on, it could be said that the book takes a rather radical position uh, in its uh, advocacy that whatever damage is done to these institutions needs to be done um, basically by letting the truth come to light. Right. Um, and so I think you, you do have this kind of um, sense that if the institution is so heavily flawed, then it needs to be dismantled anyway, kind of, right? Um, well, and that's what truth does to darkness. It yeah. dispels it. And, you know, a lot of times that the um, pushback that I will receive um, is, oh, but what about all those fake accusations? Mm-hmm. That's, you know, very clear. Everyone's all freaked out that there's going to be people accusing other people willy-nilly. And to that, I would say the stat currently is less than 6%. And when those 6% go to any sort of investigative arm, they're discovered. So yeah. it's it's not a, it's really a non-issue. And that's why we should err on the side of belief. Um, and then the other, I think, misunderstanding is that um, we don't understand the nature of predators. And so because we don't, we, we, we also don't have a very robust theology of crime and sin. But mm-hmm. when we when we encounter this, we'll say, well, we're all sinners, right? So, you know, he's, I could just be just as bad as he is. Well, no, you didn't, as long as I know, as far as I know, you didn't commit a crime. And his crime has harmed other people. It's as if he robbed a bank, Mm -hmm. or it is as if he murdered or she murdered somebody. It's that kind of crime. And so therefore, we have to treat it as such. And we, but we tend to do is, we'll say, I'm just going to offer grace to someone who has this uh, repentance narrative that has no action behind it, but they they are so good at knowing how to satisfy people with words. Yeah, and then we will malign the one who brought it to light, and this is just the opposite of what we should be doing. Yeah, if anybody's grown up in a, a church or been in a church long enough, you've known people who are really good. They've really developed a skill at speaking Christianese, right? And, yes. and and it can give all the appearances of, um, and it's the wolf of sheep's clothing, right? Uh, yes, no. exactly. Yeah, that's exactly it. Um, and I guess on that note, if you don't mind, I'd like to play uh, the book trailer um, because I think it's a yeah. good introduction to uh, the next question I want to ask about believing victims, right? And so uh, this is the, the the book trailer is a thing, is a, is a, is a genre now in publishing, right? And so, yes. um, and this is a particularly good one that brings up, I think, a lot of relevant material. So if you mm-hmm. uh, bear with with me here. Everyone watching this knows someone affected by sexual abuse. While the abuse is destructive, it's often the responses afterward that deepen the wound. Are you sure it even happened? So what were you wearing? Why didn't you tell me before? 
sure you didn't make this up to get attention? 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 Well, have you forgiven? Make your peace with it. It must have been part of God's plan. God's plan. I'm, I'm grimacing at these statements, but these are actors, right? These aren't the real people who have said these things. Yeah, one of them is my husband. You know, oh, okay. I just grabbed people from my life group at church, and they were so sweet to have to say these terrible things. They're like, oh, I don't want to do this. But, yeah. So I'm angry at these people for something they didn't do. But, um, but all of these are very indicative, though, of the kinds of responses that abuse victims of uh, a large variety actually receive in churches particularly, um, particularly the forgiveness part and the whole God's plan thing, which I think is part of the bad theology um, that we're talking about here. But um, so what damage do we do to victims when our response to their stories is anything but love? Yeah, it's a, it's a secondary trauma for the abuse survivor. So you have the primary trauma and then they have to, a couple of things that are difficult for them is of course the primary trauma the other thing is if there was someone that should have protected and did not, so that's another trauma. Yeah. And then when they disclose, if people push back and have those kinds of mean things that they say, that's another trauma that they experience. And so um, I fear for folks who have kind of jumped on the Me Too bandwagon and disclosed their abuse for the first time on social media, yeah. <laughs> because they're going to get some of those backlashing responses and better to maybe write it down and then uh, find a really safe, amazing person who is empathetic and loving and share it with them instead of sharing it to a wider audience first. Do the telescoping of start in a small place and get some healing then and there before you venture back out into the big wide world. (laughs) Yeah. Into institutions that are not set up to receive this kind of um, information well, right? And so, yeah, that's part of the problem. Right. And we do have a responsibility to, you know, to be quick to listen and so to, slow to speak. Yeah. Um, and so I, that's kind of the thing that I've learned over the years. You know, I've made lots of mistakes in this, even though I'm a survivor. I'm sure I haven't done it perfectly well. But to be humble enough to say, I didn't listen well enough. Will you forgive me for that? I I should have listened more. I shouldn't have interjected myself into that story. I should have just asked more questions or maybe I shouldn't have asked so many questions because it was alarming you and I should have been more tenderhearted. And so, yeah, I mean, we can always become better at that. But yeah, as a whole, um, and I would say this is in the larger society, not just in the church. These are responses that are coming from everywhere. And so we, as a society need to educate ourselves on the tenderness of a confession of rape and how kind of a holy moment that is and how, how kind hearted we must be in that moment. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a perfect transition into my next question. You write at one point, uh, quote, this is our We Too movement, excuse me, Mm -hmm. to uh, purposefully suffer alongside the sexually broken, end quote. What are some practical ways in which uh, our listeners can suffer alongside abuse survivors today? Well, of course, it involves listening and creating those kinds of safe places for people to feel peaceful when they share. Um, And then uh, one of the things that's been really instrumental for me is when someone has 
obeyed um, part of Romans 12 says to weep with those who weep. And I recently sat across from a guy who's actually my salesman for the book. And I I told him another part of my story that I haven't really let out publicly. And he started crying. (laughs) He's an older man. And he said, I love my daughter so much. If that ever happened to her, I don't know what I would do. And it just something about that just, oh, it just, it, it healed something in me. And then the other thing I say to churches, a really practical thing that churches can do is they can have these kinds of stories from the front. I've been in church for decades, and I've been talking about this story for a really long time before it was even ever talked about, you know, popularly. And I can I can tell you that I will look around the church and think, I know there's a lot of us out here, but why is our story never told? And it makes you feel like you're a freak. Mm -hmm. And even though I knew the statistics and I knew how many people were surrounding me with my exact same story, because it was never said from the front, I felt like it was a non-issue or it didn't matter. And so simply having someone tell their story whether it's like a testimony on a video or, um, or the pastor has that story, uh, it should be told. And yes, is that messy? Absolutely, that is messy. Yes, will people come up afterwards, tears streaming down their face? Yes. Will that mean that there will have to be more counseling services offered? Yes. Will that mean that there needs to be more ministries of listeners like the Stevens ministry where people just spend time mentoring and listening to people? Yes. But that is the work of the gospel. It's yeah. it's helping people to become whole. And um, I, I think, you know, not addressing it publicly is ignoring your sheep. Your sheep are having those problems and they are begging for the reality of it talked about. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, as you're talking, I mean, I feel like there's a, I don't know if it's built into the DNA of evangelicalism, but there's always this sort of, how can I apply this? What can I practically do? Like, what's the, I I need an answer, right? And so what Mm -hmm. you're suggesting is less of that and more of just sort of sitting back and listening and creating a place where someone can um, freely share their ideas. And and one of the, I think, outcomes of that, that theology that's so prevalent is this sort of we have to figure out why God allowed this to happen sort of um, narrative, which is, utterly, I think, kind of poisonous and destructive in, in situations like this, right? Particularly. Um, Thomas J. Ord, who's a sort of prominent Nazarene um, theologian and, and um, philosopher, uh, he has a book out where he, he talks about how, I mean, he makes a kind of controversial argument that there are certain things God can't do. Like he can't uh, step in the way of certain things. He's just by the nature of the way he set up creation. And it's a controversial claim. He admits this. But on some level, I think he would say that um, to say that God allowed something to happen for a reason is like utterly evil, right? Well, and then you, um, you know, you have people throwing Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. I know the plans I have for you. And yeah. Romans eight twenty eight. He works all things together for the good to people. They're using scripture as a weapon. Yeah. And um, a lot of times when I speak, I talk about, and I, I give people. I hope I give people freedom, and I say, I still don't know why this happened, and I still don't understand it, and. The reason I don't understand it is that I'm a parent, yeah. and if I knew my child was being harmed, I would have swooped in, swooped in, and rescued. And so I hold it in tension, and I, 
I don't hide it from God that I feel that way. He already knows I do, so it's not really, it's kind of silly to think I could hide it. Right. Um, but I'd rather dialogue with him through it in relationship and live in the tension of that, knowing that we live in this world of the now and the not yet. We're building the kingdom, but it's not here yet. I don't understand it all. Of course, there is, you know, the idea that evil people are given the ability to exercise their self-will, and that is problematic, because then that means people are victimized by evil people. Um, so yeah, it's a very uh, it's a very delicate theological dance, yeah. and I don't have a full answer to it, and I don't have a satisfying answer to it. But I still love God, and I still understand that I I don't I may not understand until the other side. Yeah. I mean, that's Ord's whole solution is just love. I mean, that's, that's the only thing we can do is sort of just love other people, right? And so, um, and, and not the institutions. And I think that's where this book is, um, I mean, it's relevant not only to the church, Ravi. I mean, you're speaking directly to the church, but these kinds of issues pervade other institutions of all sorts. Political institutions have had their their purging. Um, obviously, the entertainment industry and, and journalism has had these kinds of issues. Um, you had mentioned in the book at some point you'd recently seen the Paterno movie. Um, mm -hmm. And I live about an hour from State College, and that mm -hmm. is still very touchy around here, right? I was mm -hmm. not, I'm not from this area, and I was not here when all that happened. But, um, yeah, there are still people who vehemently defend Joe, Joe, you know, and, and so, but there's a, there's a way in which they're defending the certainties of that institution to the exclusion of the victims. Right. And so they're, yeah, to the harm of the victims. Right. I was asked if, um, if a school system would, it would benefit from reading we too. And I, I thought about it, I was like, I hadn't really thought about it, but I think so, because it's the same things going on. It's just a different locale. Yeah. But yeah, we're seeing the same kinds of responses, the same kinds of things listed all across different kinds of platforms. Yeah, yeah. Well, as we move to a wrap up here, as a member and champion of both the church and the startlingly number, the startling number of uh, abuse survivors, what do you want survivors to know? I want them to know, I believe you. I hear you. I see you. I'm so sorry. And um, I wish it didn't happen. And I hope that you will find other people who will love you outrageously and will dare to listen to your story and will partner with you in your healing journey. I, I really healed because of other people. We are, we are wounded in negative, terrible community, but the way back to health is through good community. And that doesn't mean it's perfect community. It just means that there are people willing to love you through it, willing to let you throw some tantrums, willing for you to cry, willing for you to ask hard questions, um, and yet love you through that. And that's my heart for this book is that we'll become better disciples of Jesus. I believe this is a discipleship issue yeah. and we will become more like him and more patient with people and more tender hearted and, and compassionate to those who are suffering instead of shooting our wounded all the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. I can't disagree with anything you just said there. Um, <laughs> so uh, Mary Demuth, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, where can people pick up a copy of We Too and find you online? Yeah, it's wherever books are sold. And then the book's website is we2.org. And if um, if you want resources, there's also uh, we2.org forward slash resources. There's hundreds of links because I know I don't have all the information. Plus, this book is not a... 
um, necessarily, uh, here's how to do it. <laughs> it's yeah. a catalyst for change. And then once you decide to change, then there's all these resources that you can look up there. Yeah. And you do have a manifesto at the end, which I, I'm a big I fan do. of. I'm a big fan of manifestos, actually. <laughs> I love manifestos. Good ones, of course. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so that, that uh, is a nice kind of, I think you have it framed, I think, as an appendix, if I remember correctly. Yes. And, uh, and I think it's something that as a, a church grew, I think this is something that churches should read together sort of in, in conversation. And that manifesto gives, uh, I think a lot of ways forward out of that. Right. And so, mm-hmm. and you also have a podcast, um, uh, if you, yeah, called pray every day. Is that right? I do. And I do exactly what it says. So I read a, a portion of the Bible and then I pray according to that portion of the Bible. Currently I'm reading through the book of Proverbs uh, soon I'll be reading through all the scriptures from the book We Too. So um, that will be more uh, prayers for uh, survivors. And uh, yeah, so I do it every single day, five minutes a day. Yeah, that's, I, I have to say, if nobody, if, if nobody out there has podcasted, just that kind of commitment is <laughs> daunting. It's, it's busy. <laughs> yes. yes. And, and in addition to all the wonderful writing that you're doing. So uh, Mary DeMuth, author of We Too, How the Church Can Respond Redemptively to the Sexual Abuse Crisis. Thank you so much for joining us. Please do check out um, wetoo.org and, and find out all the ways that um, – places you can find this book beginning August 13th. I think by the time this release, the show releases, it will be out already. And Yay. so, um, yeah, and I'm sure you're excited. Please do. I, yes. I can't recommend it highly enough. I think anybody who is a Christian um, definitely needs to read this, but given the pervasiveness of this uh, social sin in general, I think anybody uh, in any kind of institution will get some benefit out of this. And I, I highly recommend it. Thank you so much, Mary, for joining me. My pleasure.